a Bible, if you don't already have one, and let's turn to Romans chapter 5. And let me set the stage for where we're going. It is uh, Reformation Sunday, as Brian and Gary said earlier. Uh, next year, on October 31st, we'll, it'll be 500 years uh, since Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. They weren't written to divide the church initially, but to call the church to repentance where she had grossly erred in doctrine and practice. But not being received that way, it inspired the Protestant Reformation. Today we look at a doctrine that strikes at the very core of why the Reformers protested against the Roman Catholic Church. You may be thinking, aha, we're going to talk about justification by faith alone. Very close. But we're getting even more specific. We're looking at the basis for our justification. That is, what is it exactly that God does to sinners that enables Him to declare us righteous? How can it be that the holy and righteous God declares ungodly people righteous? Not just forgiven, but righteous. As the Catholic Church has objected before, isn't this a legal fiction? Isn't it a false judgment? Wouldn't we remove a judge if he made false judgments and called guilty people righteous? How can it be said that God does this? He does it by imputing Christ's righteousness to us. The doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer strikes at the very heart of the divide between Protestants and Catholics. And that's still true to this day, despite ecumenical attempts to say that we're just talking past each other. I'll get to more on that in a minute. If you want to know how the church has historically strayed from imputation and what Luther's own voice contributed to the Reformation, do please come tonight and listen to Brian Walker's uh, message in the fellowship hall at 6 o'clock. Bring some German food. We'll eat together and learn from some church history. I hope to compliment Brian's talk by defending the imputation of Christ's righteousness from three passages. And then I want to sharpen the good news of imputation by comparing, uh, comparing it to what Rome teaches in terms of infused righteousness. And finally, we'll close with how the doctrine of imputation affects worship, community, and mission. But before we get to the key passages, let's clarify what imputation is. And I'll use uh, a definition that comes from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He gives this following definition. To think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. That's what imputation is. To think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us and therefore it belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and so relates to us on this basis. This is what we're talking about. Even though we're guilty 
in union with Christ, God thinks of us, thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. I may illustrate it with something from Zechariah chapter 3. You may remember Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord of hosts, and, and he has these filthy garments. They are equal to garments being covered in excrement. Of course, these garments represent his filthiness and sin and his guilt before God, as well as all the people of Israel. But what does God do? God removes Joshua's filthy garments, and then God clothes Joshua with new garments that are tailored for glory. When we look at imputation, we're not merely talking about the removal of our filthy garments, our sin. We're also talking about God clothing us with His own garments. So imputation moves beyond the righteousness of Christ that enables our pardon to the righteousness that is also our perfection before God. To use the words from William Shedd, we need a righteousness that not only saves a man from hell, but will also introduce him into heaven. This is what we take up in the doctrine of imputation. But where does this come from in the Bible? Let's focus on three passages. And the first is Romans 5. We'll concentrate on verse 12 and verses 18 and 19. And Paul is dealing here with how God reconciles sinners to himself. He gets to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we expect something like, so also righteousness entered the world through one man. We don't get that yet, though. We'll get it later in verse 18 where he picks up the argument again. But he breaks off to explain why he's thinking the way he is about death reigning over all people. The key thing to notice is the universal problem of sin and death because of our connection with Adam. No one who is born after Adam's sin escapes this problem. Even worse, we're all born into the world with the problem. We inherit guilt from Adam. Adam is, is the representative of all humanity. And the proof that we inherit guilt from Adam is that we're all dying. We're all dying people. When Adam sinned, God views all of us as having sinned in Adam and are thus guilty and deserving of condemnation. Look at the way he explains our problem throughout the passage by linking us with Adam. Verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, If because of one man's trespass Death reigned through that one man. Again and again we see that our problem is not just that we do sins. 
Our deepest problem is that we're born sinners and guilty because of our connection with Adam. He says it again in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam's one trespass condemned us all. Now, it's true that our own individual sins condemn us, but that's not his argument here. The argument is that we're condemned because of our connection with Adam's disobedience. That's our biggest problem. Now, if that's our problem, and we come into the world that way, I mean, how, can, how then can we be made right with God? And the answer is not doing good works. He already established in chapter 3, verse 20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So how can we be made right with God? If we cannot do it ourselves, we need another representative. We need a superior representative. We need a new Adam who would obey where the first Adam failed and where we all fail. And that's who we get in Christ. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here's the solution. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is it that earns us a right standing with God? It's not our own obedience. It's Christ's one act of righteousness. It's Christ's life of obedience, climaxing in the cross that justifies us before God. God's law required total obedience. Not just an outward action, but also in, in heart and motivation and desires and, and longings. But, but wherever his law was not obeyed totally in that way, the law required punishment. And so God's law had both positive demands and penal sanctions. Jesus Christ obeyed in such a way that covered both for us. He totally obeyed God's law for us, and he suffered the punishment for our every infraction. When we say that Christ's obedience gives us a right standing before God, we're not only saying that he obeyed to become our pardon. We're saying that he obeyed also to become our perfection. Now, sometimes, if you've grown up in Sunday school, you might have heard justification by faith explained to you in this way, justified. And then they do a little play on word. It's just as if I never sinned. Justified. The good news is better than that, folks. It's not only just as if you never sinned. It's you have all of Christ's righteousness, positively speaking. He did not die just to pardon our iniquities, he died to become our very perfection. 
Christ's perfect obedience is the basis for our justification. And that means it's not a legal fiction, as Catholics might object. In the words of J.I. Packer, God reckons righteousness to them, to the believer, not because he accounts them to have kept the law personally, that would be a false judgment, but because he accounts them to be united to one who kept it representatively, and that is a true judgment. Now, it could be that you run into somebody who says, yeah, but there's nothing in the passage that suggests Christ's righteousness is something given to us, not this objective thing given to us in justification. And you'll hear this objection nowadays coming even from Protestants who are embracing the new perspective on Paul. And I would patiently point them first to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, pay attention to this, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the free gift of righteousness, something we receive from outside ourselves, not something we do, but something we receive as a gift. Then I would point them to the parallel logic of this entire section. Just like it was not our personal sins, but our connection to Adam's sin that leads to death and condemnation, it's also not our personal obedience, but our connection to Christ's obedience that leads to life and justification. That's how the argument works here. The reformers were right to say that justification is extra nos, meaning outside of ourselves. There's too much bad in here. There's too much bad in even our best deeds. We need a perfect God righteousness outside of ourselves, and Christ alone has it. So give us Christ, right? Give us Him. Passage number 2. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You can find that on page 966 using a pew Bible. I want to begin reading in uh, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation... Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now stop there. What's the problem in this passage? The problem in this passage is that we're all transgressors. We've all committed cosmic treason against our maker. And because of that, we are alienated from him. We are, we are separated from him. But God has a solution to our problem in Christ. He 
reconciles the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And this is bookkeeping language. Even though we're, we're in the red, in other words, our side, of the lo- our side of the line shows nothing but sin. In terms of God's righteousness, we have zero. Even though that's our condition, God doesn't count them against the people He reconciles to Himself. And the question is, how can He do that as a righteous judge if we are truly and inherently sinful? Verse 21 gives us the answer. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. This is what Brian prayed earlier, the just for the unjust. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, foretold of a, of a suffering servant. And this suffering servant would do two things for his people. One, it says the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. He would be like the Old Testament sacrifices where the sins of the people were transferred to this animal to be slaughtered. And two, he would make many to be accounted righteous. That's Isaiah 53, 11. Paul is pointing out these two realities in Jesus Christ. Some have called it the great exchange. All of our sins go on Him and all of His righteousness on us. This is the answer to how the righteous judge doesn't count our trespasses against us and He declares us righteous And he upholds his own righteousness in doing so. God makes Christ to be sin, not meaning that Christ himself becomes a sinner on the cross, but meaning that our sin gets imputed to him. So he becomes our sin without himself being inherently sinful. And that shapes how we then understand the next line. We become the righteousness of God without ourselves being inherently righteous. Meaning the righteousness is again objective, extra nos, outside of us, belonging to Christ, though God still counts it as our own. This is why Martin Luther coined the phrase simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously, at the same time, righteous and sinner. Simultaneously, just and sinner, meaning before God, we in and of ourselves are still sinful people. We have nothing inherently righteous about us. But by imputing Christ's righteousness to our account, God thinks of us as righteous. It's not that the righteousness gets personally disconnected from Christ and given to us, but that by our personal union with Him, with Christ, God views His righteousness as belonging to us. Christ is both our pardon and He is our perfection. One more passage, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 9. 
There are others. I'm just trying to give you the clearest ones this morning. Philippians chapter 3. We'll look at verse 9. Paul is uh, seeking to highlight the supreme value of Christ throughout this passage. Uh, but he does it first by listing many reasons, you know, that he has to, that he could possibly boast in his own flesh. Okay, so verse 5, for example, he gives us lists. He's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And get this one, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, in terms of being the, the, the good religious guy, Paul's got everybody beat. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Don't take that as not genuine. He's dead serious. Anybody who would have observed Paul's life could have said that Paul was consistently a religious and morally upright person. You know, he showed up on time. He always finished the job. He went to church. He gave his money. But before God... It meant zero. It was like a pile of you-know-what. That's the language he uses here. Rubbish. What he needed was Christ himself. You see, when God opened Paul's eyes to Christ's glory, he knew his own goodness didn't stand a chance. He knew his own personal righteousness, the inherent righteousness that he had, didn't stand a chance. So verse 7, but whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Get this. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice, Paul is not trading one inner virtue for another inner virtue. He's not becoming a Christian because he wants to be a morally good person, even more than what Judaism, what he found in Judaism. He's not trading one inner virtue for another. He wants Jesus alone for his righteousness. His problem is that all he would have without Christ is the kind of righteousness he has by his own law-keeping. And it is absolute rubbish before God. He needs a righteousness that he performs not in himself, but the righteousness Christ performed for him. He needs the very righteousness of God, it says, that comes through faith. He gets it by faith in Christ, or on the basis of faith, he says. Faith is not what makes us righteous. Faith is the instrument that unites us to the one, Christ, who does make us righteous. 
Faith is not the basis of our justification. It is the instrument that unites us to the basis of our justification, Christ himself. And what is faith here when we, when we, when we consider it in this passage? What is faith? Faith is renouncing all self-confidence before God. It's calling the things that you would put your confidence in a pile of mess and placing your confidence solely on Christ as your only hope before God. All that faith wants to be is found in Christ on the last day. When we stand before God and He asks, you know, what makes you fit for eternity with Him? Our only answer is Christ is all. It's not, well, I was a good person and I was a faithful deacon or I was a great evangelist and pastor or I was a pretty good parent or I anything. It's Christ is all. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? Only one of those men went home justified. Only one of those men went home right before God. And it wasn't the man trusting in all the things that he even viewed God as working in him. If you go back and read the parable, the man is thanking God that he is not like other sinners. And especially not like this tax collector over... He's giving thanks to God for this. And for placing his confidence there, he went home condemned. When we turn the results of God's grace, of God's grace into reasons for self-glory, we condemn ourselves. It was the man who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven who went home justified, who asked for God to have mercy on him who went home justified, who wasn't comparing himself to others in the room who went home justified. Even the good things that God works in us cannot become the object of our faith. Christ must remain the object of our faith. He must be all. Now, we'll stop there with those three passages. And there are others. But I want, what I want to do now is try to highlight the good news of imputation further by contrasting it with the Catholic teaching on justification by infusion. And I have to say up front, this is, this is really brief. There are all kinds of things that have to be explained. Um, but I tried to charitably represent them as best as I could. To begin, we must remember that when the Catholic Church refers to justification, they mean God's act of making someone righteous as opposed to the event of declaring someone righteous. So justification becomes a process for them. Immediately, we've got problems. They're flip-flopping sanctification and justification or equating, equating the two. So justification is a process for them. And in this process, Rome teaches that justification comes through the sacraments of the church. And it begins with the sacrament of baptism. 
Catechism from 1994 says this, Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us, get this, inwardly, not objectively, inwardly just by the power of His mercy. So through baptism, they teach God infuses grace into the soul, placing the individual into a state of justification or a state of grace. Moreover, justification for them is not a matter of God declaring us righteous on the basis of Christ's objective righteousness. Rather, it's It's God conforming us to His righteousness until we ourselves become inwardly just. This is why they charge Protestants with a legal fiction because they believe one must be actually in and of themselves righteous. Otherwise, God's a liar. So it's God conforming us to His righteousness until we ourselves become inwardly just. But baptism, you need to know, is just the starting point into the state of grace or into the state of justification. It's also possible to sin in such a way that removes you from the state of justification. The grace infused to you at baptism can be lost if you commit mortal sins. They have categories of sins, venial sins, mortal sins. Mortal sins are, 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 the, are the more serious ones, the ones that lead to spiritual death. They might refer to Galatians 5, where immorality, outbursts of anger, idolatry, and so forth. Committing mortal sins means you lose your state of justification. And that then leads to the sacrament of penance. In order to restore yourself to the state of justification, you practice penance, and you must especially perform the works of satisfaction prescribed by the priest, such as good deeds for the poor, fasting, prayer, and and so forth. And by performing these works of satisfaction, which they also believe are by grace, by the way, by performing these works of satisfaction, a person then merits favor with God, such that God restores that person to the state of justification. Now, all of this still includes faith. Let's do our best not to misunderstand them. Rome teaches that faith is necessary for any of this to count. They would even say it's faith in Christ. Or none of this counts. The issue, though, is that Rome does not view faith as a sufficient condition to be justified before God. It's a necessary condition, but it is not a sufficient one for them. Faith must also be accompanied by works, like those in satisfaction, to maintain your state of justification or to restore yourself to the state of justification. So, we've seen three pieces to Rome's teaching. Justification is a process instead of a declaration. It involves infusing grace that eventually makes a person inherently just as long as they cooperate with the grace given. And since faith isn't 
sufficient, we also need works to maintain our right standing with God. Now compare that to what we saw earlier. Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous. He does this not based on righteousness we inherently perform and cooperate with, but on everything that Christ already performed perfectly and finished for us at the cross. And all the righteousness that Christ is becomes ours by simply trusting in Him, by faith alone. Now, if you had to look at that, which one is the good news? Which message is the true gospel? Is it really good news that God will not accept me until I prove myself to be inherently righteous, even if by cooperating with grace? Is it really good news that I can somehow have faith, but if I die with any sins, I have to go through the fires of purgatory first until I possess an inherent righteousness of my own? I tell you, that's not good news. That's terrible news. Far better news is that God accepts me fully the moment I trust in Christ because all that Christ is before God becomes mine in that instant. That's the good news. And the other is a false gospel. And we know what Paul says about false gospels in Galatians chapter 1. Now, this has massive implications for our worship, our community, and our mission. So let's talk now about how the doctrine of imputation functions in life. Doctrine is for life. Theology like this is for mission to the world. So let's begin with our worship. And by worship, I don't mean singing hymns on... I don't mean just singing hymns on Sunday. I mean living before God every moment to His glory, my life and your life being a, a living sacrifice before Him, what does imputation have, us, have to do with worship? For starters, it centers all worship on Christ, and it keeps us from robbing Him of glory by living as if His righteousness is not enough. By saying it's, it's not just my, it's not just his righteousness that I need, but maybe some of my own with it. Any kind of living or talking that suggests that it must also be some of our own righteousness too that makes us accepted before God robs Jesus of glory. The imputation of Christ's righteousness also means that I'm accepted with God. He regards me as He regards His own Son. That should put a song in your mouth every morning. No matter what you have done the day before or through the night, He has opened the way for me to approach His throne boldly and with confidence, Ephesians says. I can pray to Him freely without fear of condemnation. When I sin, I can go to Him trusting that I will stand on the last day not by my own perfect obedience, but by that of Christ Himself. And also when I obey, 
I'm reminded that even my, des- my best deeds don't measure up to what I already possess in Christ, and so that keeps me humble before God and others. Something else it means, and we saw this a while back in James chapter 2, verse 23, is that Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. In James chapter 2, verse 23, we see that Abraham's works fulfilled Genesis 15, 6, which teaches that justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Justification apart from works reaches its full expression in the doing of good works. The works do not increase the righteousness that we've already received by faith in Christ. Rather, the works manifest the liberating power of Jesus' perfect righteousness that's been imputed to us. Obedience flows from a heart that's amazed that God would love us this much as to give the righteousness of His only Son to us. Jesus' righteousness won't let us remain as we are if we truly possess it, or rather, if He truly possesses us, then we'll live our lives in accord with that righteousness. Our lives will truly bring God glory and honor. Imputation also affects community. It affects community. It creates community by killing all kinds of self-righteousness and teaches us to regard others as God regards us. It creates community by killing self-righteousness and teaching us to regard others as God regards us. Just an example, if I go back to, if you go back to Luke 18, verse 9, you, you see that the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus speaks this parable to, it says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Self-righteousness always breeds contempt for others. And therefore, it kills community. You look with contempt on a particular ethnicity. Didn't Paul deal with this between the Jews and the Gentiles? You think terrorist when a Middle Eastern man passes by on the street. Somebody does something to you and you say, oh, I know she didn't just do that to me. You compare yourself to others and tally up why you are more faithful than they are. You make it your main business to criticize without imparting grace to the hearer. Self-righteousness kills community. If you're struggling to love someone in the church because of who they are or something they did, one of the first questions to ask God is whether there be any self-righteousness in you. Any confidence that you're placing in the flesh, any impulse that says you are better than they are, any thought that your righteousness is better than theirs, because I'll tell you something, it isn't. Your righteousness is nothing but a pile. But Christ's righteousness, it's everything. 
and when we all have his righteousness in full, there ain't none of us better than any other. None of us possess more of Christ's righteousness than any other. Christ's righteousness doesn't get any higher. You can't add anything to it. Once you got it, you got it. It's done. It's perfect. It's complete. And if we all have it, that means that's the starting place for all our interactions with each other, no matter how we might offend each other. We start from the place of in Christ's righteousness, hidden and found in Him. you got to put on new lenses. It's called the lenses of justification to see your brother and sister rightly, no matter who they are. So let's say that a fellow Christian offends you. Or he does things you just don't like. On those occasions... Do you look at them not, as not just forgiven, but clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness? Can you disagree over a non-gospel issue, a method of education, medicine, food, some aspects of culture, music, politics, a decision one way or the other in leadership, and, and walk away with the same fondness that God has for them in Christ? We must. We're all wearing the same clothes. Theirs are just as beautiful as yours. Do you see each other that way? Do you treat each other that way? I'm talking about when you're typing like this on Facebook. Oh, no, I'll show him. Do you see your brother and sister this way? Do you respond to them this way when they're talking about Trump or a third-party candidate? Do you regard each other as God regards you in Christ? Perhaps you haven't been seeing someone in Christ this way. I have an assignment for you this week. Go to that person. Confess your self-righteousness. And seek to love them as God in Christ has loved you. And if you will not view a fellow believer as righteous in Christ, not only will you struggle to love them, not only will you treat them with contempt, not only will you carry a critical spirit toward them, but you should question whether you truly possess Christ's righteousness at all. And if that's you, despite all your self-righteousness, guess what the good news is for you today? By simply placing your faith in Christ and depending on Him for mercy, God will clothe you with Christ's righteousness. God saves Pharisees. Paul, what did he say? As to zeal, a Pharisee, right? Or let's apply imputation a little differently to conflict in marriage. We've been doing a marriage series the last couple of weeks. What's it look like there? 
Well, you know those really pleasant moments when your spouse corrects your sin? Right? Really pleasant. Maybe you were harsh. Maybe you neglected something. How do you respond? Does, does everything in you cringe at the thought you could possibly be a sinner in this situation? We've got like our own defense attorney in here. When something comes against us, we start building the case. Oh, yeah, I'm going to say this and this and this. And by the way, my response was way better than hers. So when we come together again, I'm going from this angle. She comes at me this way. I'm going to go that way. That doesn't just happen in marriage. It happens in all kinds of relationships. What's really going on in that moment? What's really going on is that we're trying to establish our own righteousness in this situation. What's really going on is a failure to remember that Christ's righteousness clothes you, and that's enough. He doesn't need your contributions. And to do so is to rob Him of glory. It's also possible in that situation that you're not regarding your spouse as righteous in Christ. Even if they are sinning. Remember, simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously just and sinner. So instead of being a partner in grace, working toward reconciliation, sometimes we make them our enemies. But you can't be enemies if you're wearing the same clothes. The same righteousness of Christ. Imputation also helps us to hold out hope for each other when we have regrets and guilt. Imperfect parents are weighed down with guilt for poor decisions they made in the past. A sister cannot shake the haunting memories of the abortion she had or the shame from the way she gave herself away in her youth. The enemy accuses a brother for his past immorality and, and even though he's walking out repentance, the guilt is sometimes unbearable and paralyzing. You know you should be sharing the gospel with others, but you keep running away from it all out of fear or out of a love for this world. In all of these situations and others like them, our response is to hold out the hope of the gospel saying righteous in Christ, brother. Righteous in Christ, sister. The days ahead of you need not be filled with despair, but hope. If you have Christ's righteousness, you have everything before God that you need. If you have Christ's righteousness, you're not just forgiven. God is now on your side. Christ is all. This is what we need to be doing in our care group meetings and one-on-one -on -one meetings and daily preaching Christ's righteousness to each other. Our only hope for progress in sanctification is the rock-solid assurance in Christ and our justification. Finally, imputation also affects mission. Not only can we extend hope to each other, but we can extend hope to the world. I mean, we have good news to proclaim to all peoples. The end of the law, this is one of those other imputation passages, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. The end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
to everyone who believes. Everybody has the same problem. We're all born sinners in Adam. But the good news is that by simply trusting in Jesus, relying on Him to save us, God forgives all our sins and He imputes to us all His righteousness. We have a gospel that says God justifies the ungodly. Not God justifies the perfect. Not God justifies the morally good. God justifies the ungodly. Do you have ungodly neighbors? Do you know ungodly family members? Do you overhear your co-workers boasting in ungodly things that they did over the weekend together? Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter. They're running away as fast as they can from Jesus. Maybe you have a spouse that's running away from God. Our God is in the business of justifying the ungodly. They are not beyond His reach. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel here. Announce the gospel far and wide. What an opportunity we have right now with all the discussions about racism to explain how the imputation of Christ's righteousness kills ethnocentric self-righteousness. People are talking about this in the news. Share the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Sever the root of self-righteousness and show them how they can be made one in Christ. What an opportunity we have to hold, uh, uh, hold out hope for the Hindu and Muslim peoples of the world. God can make them righteous in Christ too. God imputes righteousness to terrorists. Look at the Apostle Paul. Teach your Catholic family members and neighbors the distinctions we talked about today. Don't assume they're okay. They're gathering with the people, feeding them a false gospel, and false gospels do not save. Help them to see the true gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And when faith comes, God declares people righteous in Christ. So spread the news, brothers and sisters. Pick one lost person this week to pray for and share the goodness of the imputation of Christ's righteousness with them. Why don't we pray together?